next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as always, let's say hello and welcome to our co-host and renaissance man, Gene Robinson. Hi, Gene. And I I am still Gene Robinson, and I will probably stay that way for a while. Hello, Patrick. How are you, sir? Doing good. Doing good. There's a little gas in the chainsaw. Um, No bears this week, but uh, we did take down some more trees. And, uh, you know, we got to uh, safeguard uh, our environs against the uh, threat of of forest fire, even though it's starting to snow. You know, you never know with these things. Someone... Careless could drop a cigarette in the uh, pile of refuse or something, and the whole place goes up in smoke. But anyway, I digress. So, you know, uh, usually we do the current events, and um, this actually whole show is going to be current events. I just didn't want to, you know, bring up one thing. I've been on the, uh, the FOIA fury again, and I've uh, been sending off a whole bunch. Is this RID, the holy grail? Of beyond visual line of sight, flying over people, and waivers will not be needed anymore after the 1st of uh, January. You know, you're going to be good to go. The whole thing's going to crack open like an oyster with a pearl in it. Um, however, I did, um, you know, figure that it would be kind of a, you know, service to the community to get a heads up on the concept of uh, operations for the, for the, um, UAS Digital Investigations Program, that's going to be part of the RID thing where they're going to, I guess, be logging everything. Kind of what they tried to do with ADSB and AOPA pushed back and all the rest of that. But anyway, they will be able to uh, log everything you're doing. And if they determine that uh, you're some sort of troublemaker or reprobate or something (laughs) else, they'll be able to come after you. Which I don't know who could be on that list. I mean, you probably remember a few years ago, they were like, we're keeping a list. We're writing names down, and if people step out of line, you remember that? I I do, and, you know, because of that memory, I went flying yesterday in my little 172, and, and I'm holding off on ADSB as long as I can and trying to skirt around the, the Charlie and Bravo airspace, just kind of squawking 1,200 and just, you know, doing my own thing because, uh, yeah, I remember well. Well, it's coming to drones, too, so, you know, and, you know, nothing gives me, like, a, I can almost see the flag waving in the wind and the freedom and the, you know, Bill of Rights and the Constitution, like, you know, something like that. We're keeping a list of names. All right, well, we'll see what happens. I like, I like stuff like that. It makes me uh, feel all warm and hey, Is that, that that's kind of like that no-fly list I was on, wasn't it? Okay, you were on the no-fly list. That's right. I forgot. I didn't get on that, but uh, you lucky bastard, you. Yeah, that was me. I know you're like, no more salted peanuts. What's going on here? Um, (laughs) Anyway, so we'll have to see what happens. I I think it's kind of funny. They they wouldn't give me the con-offs because it's not finalized, and, you know, I really don't want to let it out because people might grouch about draft things. Uh, but, you know, they're rolling our, uh, that RID out, you know, here, like, it's December. The gates open up, so we'll have to see what happens. I find it hard to believe that the FAA would roll out some program that was just totally half-baked or semi-half-baked or quarter-baked or whatever, but, you know, whatever. Fool me 450 Surely times. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I like the aggravation. I've, I've sat there. I thought about it. the whole airspace integration thing. It's got to be, you know, an affection or an affliction for the aggravation. I don't know. Anyway, so let's uh, let's bring on uh, this week's guest. Uh, so Mr. Brock Gibson, and Brock has a long and distinguished uh, Air Force career, and then later moved on to be a VP at In Situ. And, and, and Brock, I'm excited to have you on because. I think this conversation is going to be good. It'll be an eye-opener um, from folks or for folks who, you know, uh, let's say rarely get a glimpse into how, you know, the, the military unmanned aircraft programs work and, and, and the DOD vendor side of it. But before we get into that and pack all the fun, um, you have a very long and, and impressive uh, bio, so I'd like to have you kind of Maybe hit the high points uh, of your uh, your career and whatnot, Brock, if you could. 
Okay. Uh, good morning. Uh, uh, great uh, uh, to be uh, with you uh, this morning, Patrick. And, uh, Gene, uh, pleasure to meet you. Uh, uh, admire the accomplishments that uh, you all have made in the industry and uh, getting the word out the way that you all do with uh, Ground Truth. Respect that highly, and uh, especially Gene, the work uh, you do in the uh, in the area of SAR with uh, unmanned systems uh, is near and dear to my heart. Uh, but a uh, little bit about my background: uh, Yes, I am a retired uh, Air Force, uh, 21 years uh, aviator. Started out uh, in uh, 130s and uh, enjoyed that platform, uh, but. Uh, went into the Air Force to fly upside down, so I uh, went back early in my career as an uh, instructor in the white jets and uh, became a instructor evaluator, acceptance test pilot on the uh, new T-1A Jayhawk when we brought that on board into the training command. And uh, then uh, various staff tours, and uh, before I knew it, 21 years later, it was time to uh, hang up the uniform and had a great career, but was ready to kind of move on into uh, some sort of retirement job. And that's kind of what led me into the uh, unmanned systems uh, industry. Uh, uh, got a call from uh, in situ in uh, 2006 uh, asking if I'd be interested in coming on board and uh, so I came on board just to be a guy that uh, you know operates the system and uh, does the uh, test flights and uh, deploys when necessary and all that kind of stuff and the next thing you know uh, uh, they were uh, being acquired by Boeing and the uh, company's predominant uh, business of uh, services, uh, flying our own equipment uh, for customers, uh, uh, was having a little bit of trouble in the field. And uh, so I got kind of tapped on the shoulder to uh, put together their deployed operations division. And uh, that's where um, I spent most of my time and uh, rose through the, the ranks. And uh, they ultimately made me a invited me onto the executive team and uh, made me a vice president of uh, Boeing in situ after the uh, the acquisition, uh, which occurred in uh, 2008. And, uh, and uh, so I pretty much uh, ran the deployed operations portion of it, and, uh, and uh, that grew over the years. I picked up... Uh, uh, under my division, I picked up the uh, training outfit, uh, of course, the demonstration team, and all of the flight tests uh, as part of my organization. And we ended up being the uh, the, the largest, uh, most predominant division of the entire company and also the primary profit center because uh, Institute wanted to be a high-tech company uh, and just sell their products to other uh, uh, companies in Washington, but the uh, reality was that it wasn't exactly the best platform nor designed for the purpose that ended up using it in a military application in combat. And uh, so our, our primary mission really became uh, services, uh, deploying uh, both, uh, you know, pilots, maintainers, and mission Nators, uh, into the uh, forward operating locations in all the hotspots around the globe, namely OEF and OIF, and uh, and uh, that's where the company was uh, able to log their record uh, over one million uh, flight hours in combat. Uh, not not truly uh, on the acquisition side where. Uh, the customers are flying the aircraft itself. It's we're flying the aircraft for the customer. And uh, so that's been the predominant business and uh, how I was involved with in situ over the years. And then uh, 2017 decided I'd had enough of that. And uh, there was a lot of changes going on inside the company and the Boeing bureaucracy was entering the equation. And uh, 
decided that, hey, the, the real growth stage is over here. Uh, let me just kind of back out uh, gracefully and, uh, and enter uh, my second retirement. <laughs> so that's my life story. Well, there's a lot going on there, and there's a lot that, uh, you know, as you were talking about all of that experience with the in situ, you know, it's like, because, mm, you know, Gene and I have been involved with the uh, unmanned uh, aircraft system integration thing for, oh, geez, uh, going on dog's years. Now, for a long time, probably about uh, 2003, four. um and, you know, we started to, to hear some of these. So, one, uh, you know, you got there pretty early to in-situ. Did, did you know uh, Tad McGear? Uh, um, I uh, have met him on several occasions, uh, but did not have a very close personal relationship with him. But I certainly got to know him through the uh, through the company and the significance of his uh uh you know being the original founder of the company and uh how uh without his early efforts there would not have been any in situ as we know it today and he, he's a, and he's a friend of mine he's a good guy he was on the uh SUAS arc that the FA put together and he's a good guy he's you know um smart dude you know i've sat through a couple of uh, professor McGear's physics lessons during the arc, which some people, he cleared the room. People are like, and I'm like, you know, preach it, brother. You know, break out the uh, whiteboard and the the markers. Let's see it. You know, I'm into this uh, natural philosophy thing. Um, Good guy, smart guy. Um, Go ahead. I just said facts, data, and truth. That's all that matters. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the whole story with uh, In-Situ and Tad, you know, it's uh, funny as I've asked, you know, I said, well, you know, I was one of those uh, Faustian deals, you know, I'm an engineer, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you know, I'm an engineer, and we like your project, we'd like to, you know, help you with that, and, you know. And then the next thing you know, uh, you know, he's, he is anti um uh, I would say anti-war. It's pretty funny. He talked about the government contracting and, you know, some quote out there about how it's like the worst form of socialism. Um, but I do think that in the drone thing, the, let's say, um, war on terror and ensuing overseas contingency operation, which I called it a shooting overseas <laughs> contingency operation. But anyway, whatever the case, there was um, cost-plus contracting. And that might have played into a little of uh, some of what you were talking about, where you're saying, hey, we wanted to sell these things or whatever else. It seemed that they rushed these systems out, and, hey, we could do a lot with them, but they maybe it was so much that they weren't ready for prime time or they weren't ready for, um, let's say, the uneducated end user. What, what do you think some of the difficulties might have been on the adoption side? I'd have to say my observations early on were uh, that uh, the the user interface or the operating systems themselves uh, uh, weren't developed uh, to fit into a a uh, already established environment with uh, rules and regulations that existed uh, within the various classifications of airspace and uh, and uh, some of the ways of operating and controlling the systems um, uh, uh, you know required uh, deviations from uh, fitting into uh, national or international airspace, for that matter, and so um, it was a, it was a little bit of a challenge operating uh, these systems, and especially because we were, like you mentioned, Patrick, we were starting to uh, use them for purposes that they weren't originally designed for. Um, as, as you're fully aware, the Scan Eagle, uh, Tad's vision for it was uh, 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 for atmospherics, collecting data, and uh, then later on uh, uh, 
uh, in the fishing industry, locating schools of tuna, and uh, I believe that's probably where the departure between uh, Tad and in situ came about because of his uh, his uh, his beliefs systems, which I admire, um, and uh, and wanting to use the platform he designed for peaceful purposes rather than where it seemed to have a market, and that's on the on the military side in combat. And uh, I I totally understand what he was. Uh, uh, concerned with, and uh, believe it or not, I'm concerned with the same thing. I don't want to. The only people that hate fighting wars uh, um, uh, more than anybody else are those that we send to fight them. And so the uh, reason I got into it was in the hopes that we could uh, save lives with the platform um, um, in the general war on terrorism and uh, and. Uh, uh, um, uh, not necessarily because uh, of what uh, many others that were attracted to the industry from a big business standpoint was uh, how can we manipulate the system to make uh, ungodly amounts of money off of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there is a profit. Uh, profit is a motivator. Um, I do, you know, some of that uh, I agree with and disagree with on the militarization of the technology. I mean, I'm not, uh, I, I will be the first, you know, I was a vocal opponent of, let's say, the extrajudicial killing machine, and I butted heads with people um, on that, including the, the leadership, quote unquote, leadership air quotes of AUBSI. To, as a as a budding organization or let's say industry or whatever that I, it's you know if you're defending boots on the ground or whatever rifle away you know blow up the hut kill the bastards I don't care because you have to support the warfighter and you start getting into the uh, into the gray areas that's uh, when things come kind of get weird for me but as far as surveillance goes the persistent surveillance and all the rest of that it works great force protection I'm all for it. And even the technology, if it's uh, not weaponized, I, I think it's a good thing. That's me personally. Gene, you have any feelings on that? that well, you'd like to Brock, share? Was, well Brock, Brock was preaching there for a while, and I, you know, I'm with him. I'm ex-Air Force as well. And by the way, Brock, day late. Thank you for your service. Yesterday was Veterans Day. And, uh, well, you know, you, uh, you stuck it out a lot longer than me, but uh, you know that's that's the deal. When you sign that uh, that paper, you you just signed a blank check up to including your life, and that's uh, uh, that's pretty important deal. So uh, no, you're you're preaching to the choir there, man. I I was right there with you, and and uh, Patrick and I watched that that drive for the dollar. You know, in in the early days, you know, we were trying to go out there and do good and save lives and do search and rescue, and and uh, they were. There were a lot of MBAs that were saying, uh, "Well, what can we do to monetize this?" <laughs> and uh, yeah, it it was a little disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, there's uh, you know you know fair and reasonable uh, profit that has to be made in the industry, uh, in any industry, and. Uh, and uh, the use, as both you and Patrick have described, I totally am on board with that as well and uh, recognize that uh, sometimes you just got to snuff the bad guys out in order to save lives. And uh, so I'm on board with uh, any anything that ultimately lo- uh, leads to uh, saving uh, uh, people's lives, especially the lives of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and mer- yeah, I think it goes with that. I mean, I'm one of those, like, if you're going to get in it, then be in it to win it, you know. Uh, or, you know, don't ruin all those lives. Stay home, you know. I, I, it just, I don't want to get into that, too far down into that rabbit hole. But, uh, you know. Stop right there. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's yeah. I Well, that, even, I was not a veteran. I was a uh, civilian contractor for both the uh, Navy and the Army. And, you know, just uh, popular on some of those community calls when, uh, you know, you tell people, hey, you know, well, there's an expectation that the deliverables are going to work after we pay for them. Makes you a popular guy on the calls. But, uh, 
you know, you can't send something to Afghanistan that doesn't work. It's not like you can go to Radio Shack and buy parts and, you know, put it together. Um, but, you know, whatever. Now, the other thing with adoption, because there's still, you know, a busload of stuff to unpack here. So, you know, um, on these rapid deployments, pushing this technology out in the field, uh, from my own experience, um, people were mocked including myself, you know, these complex systems. And I wouldn't say that, I mean, uh, the, the system I was on, I was on uh, PGSS, which is the Persistent Ground Surveillance System, which we, I was like guy number five, standing that up. There were, there was no documentation whatsoever. Um, you know, uh, the training was, was stood up and rushed and they were really, you know, it was like, okay, we're doing the training. These guys are going to get fielded. There's no manuals. Ah, they'll remember. Did did you have to deal with anything like that, Brock, or did you guys have a button-down training program and deployment program where where everything was kind of uh, ironed out, or were you kind of doing it by the seat of the pants? Oh, the latter. Uh, Very much uh, in the early days, it was, uh, you know, uh, doing whatever was necessary to make it work. And as a matter of fact, that's what led to uh, me being called into the operational side was that uh, our Marine Corps customer was about ready to kick us off the battlefield because uh, we didn't have the kind of uh, uh, seasoned uh, warfighter uh, that was uh, that that understood what it took to survive in the environment uh, that we were operating in. And so they, the whole reason they asked me to come in and, uh, you know, give a solution was uh, 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 to stand up a professional aviator and maintenance uh, operation that was capable of operating in these environments and serving the military customers and not wandering around on the battlefield in uh, uh, tie-dye T-shirts, shorts, and flip-flops uh, with the system. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I was very much into, even as uh, civilian contractors, uh, uniforms, you know, who's who in the zoo, you know, is this guy part of the crew or is it some, you know, some other dude doing something else and, you know, I think that, uh, and, and also the the cohesion of the, the team working together, but uh so, you know, I think another thing, too, is people don't understand. I mean, I didn't deploy, and there were reasons I didn't uh, go, which actually I regret. But on one hand, I'm happy. The other hand, I kind of regret. But um, the conditions are are not one that are, um, let's say, easy to work in. Hot, sandy, um, and, and not a lot of resources. How, how did that affect your, your, uh, your debts? Um, I, you know, I, uh, having been out of the business now uh, for two years, it may have evolved, uh, but, uh, you know, the supply chain and the logistics of trying to figure out how to get uh, um, your hardware and all of your parts and uh, uh, replenishments was enormously cha- uh, an enormous challenge. Uh, relying partially on, uh, you know, commercial transportation to get you close to the areas. And then, of course, uh, uh, being the last man on the totem pole to join uh, Mill Air as you, uh, you know, got your equipment into the theater for operations. Uh, A huge, enormous uh, challenge. And uh, then the limitations of the systems, for the operating environment resulted in uh, basically uh, us MacGyvering it out in the field and uh, using the old uh, duct tape and bailing wire approach uh, to to keep the systems operating. And uh, the only way we were able to do that was with good, solid, professional mission hacking uh, 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 operators, maintainers, and mission coordinators that were employed by the company and of a variety of subcontractors that we utilized. So supply chain in that environment was, uh, you know, doubly difficult uh, um, uh, from what, uh, 
you would normally expect um, as we see the industry exploding in non-military applications as well. And what about, you know, so you got there and let's say the adjustment to, uh, let's say, the the customers' uh, con-ops. I mean, uh, did they have unrealistic expectations or think, ah, this stuff is garbage, and then when they saw what it could do, hey, we want it all the time and everywhere. Um, how did uh, how did that work for, for you in your experience? Um, well, the... Uh the the uh customers requirements were certainly uh, uh legitimate and uh, even reasonable for the operating environment and also on the on the business side uh, those people that were merely interested in profiteering off of it rather than you know uh delivery of uh, what they promised were willing to uh promised lots of things that were just not uh, uh, deliverable uh, in those kinds of environments with the kind of disconnect that we had uh, from the, uh, you know, uh, product uh, design, the quality, reliability, operability, and maintainability. And uh, so that was was certainly uh, uh, problematic for us. Well, I think the other, you know, even from my own experience, you know, a lot of these systems, and I'm not saying this about uh, Scan Eagle, but a lot of people, you know, hey, we're going to design systems and have computers and controllers and, you know, fiber optics and all of the rest of this stuff that work really good in an air-conditioned office environment, but uh, you get it out in the field, uh, sand, heat, you know, uh, wind, and and then let's say just even like the uh, I don't even want to say hygiene inside the uh, inside the uh, ground control station or GTS and stuff starts to kind of go south uh, rather quickly. Did you experience any of that? Oh, absolutely. You're 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 right on target there, uh, Patrick. Uh, the uh, the conditions that uh, just the physical conditions alone were such that uh, uh, it was uh, an enormous challenge to keep uh, our equipment uh, fully uh, functional um, uh, and that's uh, just with the physical environment. Our systems were not ruggedized the way you would normally expect military equipment to be. Okay, uh, weren't protected, and even uh, you know things like EMI uh, interference was a huge deal, and so we were constantly dealing with evasive problems uh, that were so hard to detect because our, you know, our systems weren't shielded the way they would need to be in order to uh, be reliably operated in an environment where you got, uh, you know, stray waves being shot around in the atmosphere by all sorts of different, uh, you know, military hardware and equipment that's being operated. Yeah, well, they have a, you know, solution for that. Well, the Army did anyway. They had the NIE exercise, you know. we get everybody together and click all the stuff on and see what happened. Uh, <laughs> you know, depending on how close you were standing to Raytheon's radar, could be a little bit warmer, a little bit cooler, but you may have no comms. Uh, yeah, the whole deal is kind of a circus. It's actually uh, kind of interesting. But it's funny yeah. you uh, say that in that environment, you have to watch um, – I was the uh, high altitude test bed flight director, and I had to watch all of the equipment like a hawk. You know, hey, we got to go run the fiber to the talk. You know, and the guys dragging the, uh, the end connector through the sand. You know, I'm like, well, that's garbage. <laughs> so, well, you can't coerce the duster. We'll clean that out. It's like, nah, it's crap. You know, you just uh, taxpayer just ate a ten thousand dollar roll of tactical fiber. You know, we'll have to do something else. But uh, if you're not watching all the time, if you're not uh, mother-henning this stuff, um, 
stuff starts getting broken and out of service. And then, like you said, you're, you're doing the kind of the duct tape and bailing wire, which might be a broad description, but uh, you know, you got to come up with solutions because the, the nearest, well, if you're depending upon the nearest supply could be 10,000 miles away or in El Paso or whatever, but uh, makes it very difficult to um, complete the mission and then also uh, support the warfighter. So there's always, you know, trying to be uh, mission ready. Um, a lot of stress, uh, you know, where you, your calls going back. Let's say the uh, the Boeing community meeting calls. Were, were you on them from uh, overseas? Um, yes. Uh, oh, uh, most of ours were contained uh, within in situ proper, but we certainly had uh, regular engagements uh, with the with the Boeing folks. Uh, uh, on various contracts, we had so many different contracts running simultaneously um, in the services side, and a handful on the acquisition side. That's that ratio is flipping now, but we had to engage uh, directly with uh, Boeing at the program management level uh, because a lot of the times they may be prime on a contract that we were servicing for them. And there was a, you know, uh, expectation management, I believe that's called, correct? <laughs> that's it. And I'd say the the one of the most frustrating things uh, from an operator's perspective that uh, I dealt with continuously was a, a disconnect between those who were most interested in the profit margins being extremely high and those that were interested in getting the job done. And so a lot of times we found us, you know, promising something, some capability, and uh, not when it became evident out in the field that that was not deliverable, then there was a – the expectation was is that – the operators would somehow overcome it. And uh, one of the most glaring examples was uh, uh, they, uh, the customer did not understand that we were not operating off of the same uh, barometric altitude plane as uh, the rest of the uh, airplanes uh, uh, flying around in theater. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how early on in the uh, in the in the track that I had told the company we need to have a mode C capability with uh, you know reporting according to what the rest of the uh, standard uh, uh, plane is that everybody else uses or once a customer finds this out we're going to get kicked out on the basis of you know, being a hazard to the rest of manned aircraft out there, and uh, and the the company's response was uh, to drag their feet and hope that uh, the topic never came up, and when it did, uh, merely throw words at it in a couple of PowerPoint slides to get the customer us to fly again and so it's typical of what you see especially uh, on the big business side and how they work inside of the uh, uh, military industrial complex and acquisition and procurement systems is uh, that uh, you know they're 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 trying to increase the profit margins as high as they possibly can and uh, uh, and overcome uh, real hazards and operating limitations just uh, with, uh, you know, PowerPoint slides rather than actual fixes to the problem. And uh, So, so Brock, did uh, we just get the real reason for all those in-theater drone strikes with manned aviation? Uh, the, did we get the real reason? <laughs> No, I, I think you just kind of explained about the uh, different barrow scales that people are using, and that would kind of account for some of those deconfliction issues that uh, uh, we heard so much about, you know, about yes. introducing drones into theater. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, oh. just to give 
just to give you an idea of what the fix would be is you just put it onto the operator's shoulders. Uh, they'd, in order to overcome that limitation, and he's got to run literally some kind of complex algorithm in his head to figure out the difference between uh, what the local conditions and settings should be uh, for a barometric system uh, and convert that into a GPS altitude that, oh uh, you know, and uh, so that's that's the kind of cubicle solutions that I believe Patrick talking about earlier that we would get. And so there was, a, you know, a disconnect. And the shame was is that all this information was readily available to everybody with the experts uh, capable of, uh, you know, defining what the solutions uh, required. But there was, uh, you know, a, a dismissal of that um, because it was going to be cutting into those profit margins and more costly than uh, uh, what the what what the company was willing to accept. Yeah, it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Um, funny, funny side note, you know, so uh, with my time with the Navy, I, I was training uh, one of the officers that was going to be in charge of this surveillance. Uh, I don't want to get too far into the script title or whatever, because it might get found out, but you know, we're having this candid conversation. It was the Navy. So we're having a couple of beers which is one thing that I really liked about the Navy. It was a little bit more relaxed. Um, you could be like, hey, let's have a couple of beers, Captain. Okay, sounds good. But, uh, you know, it was like re, uh, relating a story, and, you know, man, we really felt taken advantage of by Boeing with this can eagle. And I have to say, I was like, well, yeah, there, you know, there is some stuff going on there. But, geez, after the beating you guys took with BAMs and that Trident thing and the software upgrades and crashes and all the rest of that stuff uh, that kind of seems like a bargain to me i i don't know if you were uh, <laughs> privy to any of that information with uh, the northrop grumman platform um did, did you do anything about that or no um yeah it, it was certainly a, a bargain uh, <laughs> for the for the military because uh what we were doing with uh you know crews of uh, uh, four times two, eight to run a 24-7 operation in the field uh, would have taken on the order of, you know, 50 to 100 military people and there would to accomplish the same mission. And so it's certainly a bargain from that standpoint. But then you then you start looking at, well, why was everybody going after this? Well, there's a huge pocket of... Uh, of, of money, OCO, overseas contingency operations, that's not even budgeted. Uh, um, Made in the normal gravy. Yeah, yeah. And so you found that uh, the non-operational types, types were chasing that big bucket of, of money that was easy to access if you knew how to work the system and uh, – which is another thing that I have trouble with is that uh, it ends up stifling competition because only the big uh, guys know how to work yes. the system well enough, you know. Yeah, and uh, so, so we've shortchanged ourselves by, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, an exclusive club that has had access. Uh, to these uh, large sources of fundings uh, to develop their systems. And while there are smaller guys out there with uh, much better ideas and much better uh, equipment uh, that just can't make it because they don't have the uh, con contacts and ability to work 
the inside track of the uh, the system, and we now see this bubbling over into a huge problem on the commercial side, especially as we get into what's near and dear to the three of us, and that's the smaller systems, and uh, the uh, you know the near uh, cornering of the market by. Uh, uh, the Chinese with DJI and yep. uh, locking out so, so many other incredibly great ideas and systems and the potential to develop those inside our own country without all of the concerns of proliferating, uh, you know, uh, uh, potentially a, a platform that has systems that can collect data on our population and national security concerns and all of those kinds of issues which are uh, greatly concerning to me and I believe uh, you all too at this particular juncture. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I mean, so, you know, you were on a, uh, a program where you're, you're out there, you know, uh, I, collecting ISR. You know, and I get it from the armchair guys all the time. Yeah, why would they want to collect data? And there's nothing that they could collect. You know, it's like, have you have you ever, you know, like collected intelligence? Well, no. And I said, do you know what types of things have value? Well, you know, I've seen movies, you know. Uh, all right, then pipe down. And even the Chinese thing, people think that I'm anti-Chinese. I'm not anti-Chinese. They're, they're industrious people. You know, China, is the, the dragon's rising man, and anybody who doesn't see it or hasn't seen it in the last 10 or 20 years is just deluding themselves. And, uh, you know, they're really doing what any country in their position should be doing. You know, uh, if you want to be like, you know, the number one or lone superpower, uh, pretty much that's what you do. And uh, but my thing with it is is let's be educated about it. Um, you know, oh, it's just like a cell phone. You know, a cell phone doesn't. Uh, you know, we're we're not talking about. Uh, we always do this talk about what the the uh, let's say benefits of the the drone are, for lack of a better term, and how what the value prospect is in it. But then on the other hand, there's no value prospect in it for somebody who may be potentially spying. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it lacks intellectual honesty. Although I gave up on that because that really puts people, that, that whole intellectual honesty concept puts people in a really dark, dark spot or place. So I gave up on that. But uh, that's definitely an issue. And the other thing is, is, you know, people said, oh, well, you know, we weren't able to do that. And I did want to touch on some of that. So let's, you know, I, and I want to use ProSiris. Gene, you remember ProSiris, right? The unicorn. I do remember those guys very well. Yeah, I mean, you know, they had that on-point tracking system where you could track and terminate moving ground targets and uh, moving airborne targets. And I think I saw a demo of that in 2009. And so even when I worked for the Navy, Navair, they were like, oh, we got this flying munitions, but there's no autopilot. And I'm like, oh, no, there is one. I, I've seen it. Ah, you know what you're talking about. You're crazy. And I, I get that a lot in this industry. I've been, they've been telling me I'm nuts since, I think, uh, day one. But anyway, it was kind of disappointing. But people say that. Well, you know, the Chinese, they just have all this stuff, and uh, we can't uh, compete. And uh, we can't compete because we have our hands and legs tied behind us. We're like kind of hogtied or something here. Uh, and, Brock, you kind of touched on that with the proliferation and the ITAR thing. And I do remember in the early days with integration, you had a lot of the DOD guys were thinking it was, I mean, I, I had, you know, the guy that was running the Google thing tell me there will never, ever, ever be any money in smalls. I had the uh, Navy and DOD telling me the Chinese would never be able to field anything like a drone. It's just too sophisticated for them or whatever else. But so there was this like, um, you know, I, I just these, these dominoes just kept falling that just shut us down. And then the um, when we had the policy clarification in 2007, I mean, the, it was like the, the cakewalk music uh, just stopped and you just couldn't do anything. And even the, the DOD vendors were complaining that uh, it was hobbling innovation. How, how did you see that, Brock, inside the machine? Yeah, um, the the whole the whole idea of what you were describing is uh, 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 we've got to have uh, uh, a 
playing field. And uh, uh, when you have, you know, uh, different uh, different ideas uh, between countries of what is acceptable, i.e., you know, the, the Chinese have no problem, uh, 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 you know, stealing our intellectual property and technology then uh, producing equipment um, in an environment that there's no way we could function uh, in our own environment and be uh, competitive with them, and then turn around and sell them, sell it back to us. That's one thing. The other thing I see as being hugely problematic is that uh, uh, the 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 fact that we are now acquiescing in our own uh regulatory requirements for these products and making room for them and accommodating them and altering our own uh, procedural requirements so that a a system they want to use that uh, enables uh, tracking of the aircraft in our own national airspace is now worked in uh, in addition to the system, the the basic system that the FAA requires for the rest of us, which is almost cost prohibited, prohibitive uh, uh, when it comes to being able to deliver an uh, affordable product. And uh, so now we got two different things out there uh, operating in the same airspace, uh, but it's been an unfair competition to be able to get to where you uh, uh, can even function in the environment because we've accommodated uh, somebody else that has gotten there in a, in a route that our own uh, folks would not be allowed to take. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. And I do think that even this remote ID thing, I mean, you know, I started the program off and I was talking about the con ops for the uh, digital investigations program. I mean, basically the FAA, this this thing is going to, you, you guys are going to see a disaster. And I don't think it's going to stand. I really don't. They're going to roll this out and it's going to turn into uh, the uh, quintessential foster collect. Um, but what's happening is, is there, that the, uh, the toy company is going to get a mandate that their app is going to uh, satisfy this RID thing. So, um, you know, unfair one, two, or, you know, you're talking about collecting data again. You know, it's like, hey, let's ice up the cake a little bit more um, and write happy birthday on there or whatever uh, so we can make it a little bit more enticing to people that might want to collect data. That's a problem. The other thing with it is the, the regulation, you know, so I, we talked a little bit about uh, saying, you know, uh, I think it was back in 2009, I said, hey, man, what are you guys going to do to the military and the federal government? When uh, the $1,000 Chinese UAV shows up, they laugh me out of the room, yada, yada, yada. But what we are seeing now, as far as I'm concerned, because we see more and more proliferation of this uh, equipment falling into the hands of insurgents or whatever else, who ultimately is taking it in the shorts here? The warfighter. Because we don't, I don't see a progression of systems. I mean, even now it's like, a, oh, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're trying to find a replacement for the shadow. I, I, you know, I, I, I think Fred Flintstone was flying that when he was in. I mean, it just, you know, I mean, what, what happened to the innovation? And so, you know, even uh, in situ, you know, we have uh, Integrator or Blackjack. You know, we, maybe we can dive into that one a little bit. I, I just started laughing when they rolled, oh, it's going to be great. And two guys can carry it around. And I was in seeing that uh, Technology Training Corporation thing. I think it was back in 2011 or something. And I go, okay, uh, show of hands, you know, in the room here, uh, who likes to carry heavy stuff around at 120 degrees and lose sand? Show of hands. Let's see it. And, uh, of course, everybody in the room laughed, but, uh, you know, maybe you could give us some insight into how the old blackjack came about. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting point you're making is that the, uh, the ground support equipment uh, and, the, and the footprint required for some of these expensive things is not at all going the direction that the warfighter wants in, that, in a small system is uh, uh, you know very expeditionary. Uh, where you, <laughs> you hit it on the 
put it on your backpack, you know. And certainly there are those systems out there, but there are many, many others that have not uh, fully matured because of the limitations of, of, of the procurement system, in my opinion, um, and also this uh, unfair competition. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm talking a lot of historical stuff right now, but, uh, Patrick, you recall how difficult it was in the early days to even access airspace to conduct uh, training and other types of operations. And uh, it was only the big guys that knew how to work the systems that the the system itself that we're able to acquire a sponsor uh, in order to even get that grant a COA to fly in, and then the big guys were manipulating that which was granted for a specific purpose, public use for the military, and they were able to themselves in many other areas that were actually prohibited by the COA, but they were doing it under the radar. And uh, can't tell you the amount of flesh I lo lost on the backside when I would uh, tell the guys up above me that, hey, we can't conduct that kind of operation out in our local flight because it's not authorized by the FAA. And they would tell me, Oh, well, just do it under this other category of flying. And so they were able to, uh, the big guys were able to advance in a way that it was uh, uh, not available to the small guys. And so we oh, uh, Yeah, no, you know, it's funny you brought that up because during the arc, you know, uh, you guys were up there training um, – Training guys at what was that? Was it Boardman? What, what's the little airport up there? You guys were doing the training out of. So we used two primary areas: uh, the Boardman area, uh, which lies right underneath the uh, restricted airspace out by Boardman, Oregon, and then we uh, the predominant area where our COA was was at uh, Arlington Municipal yes. Field, is just east of. Uh, the uh, headquarters for in situ about an hour. Well, now that was the one that I described to the FAA because I told them, I said, I, I want to open Patrick's flight school. And, yeah. uh, you know, I want to teach all these people how to fly these different systems, you know, and, and the guys from AeroVironment and the guys from in situ were in the room. And I'm, I, I, I just, I, I'm not looking for anything special, man. I just want the same deal that Boeing got, you know, and I want to be able to go teach people because that's not commercial. They tried to tell me that instruction wasn't commercial, even though we were, yeah, these were civilian contractors and it was 40000 a seat. I forget how much at the time. It was less than that at a seat or whatever for the training. But I got, it sounds commercial to me. And I want to do the same thing. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to need the manuals for the different systems so I'm able to teach this, you know, which all the uh, representatives from the company uh, – Family show, I can't tell you what they said, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, no, I wasn't getting that. And then, of course, the FAA was pissed off because I called them on the carpet on that deal and said, you know, you guys said you can't be making any money. That's commercial. You can't do the COA thing, but it's going on today, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think this is another thing with this uh, community, too, is I, I think that people are naive. I do, I believe that a lot of people think that there's a, square game going on here um and that that also you know if i had a dollar for every time i heard oh common sense will prevail you know i'd be rich because <laughs> uh, yeah. there is no there's no common sense in this game you know everybody talks about how it's about safety uh it's really kind of a, more of a safety thing cya for the job and i you know i get that you know everybody wants a new golf bag and you know whatever but uh, I, I think it really, you know, going back to the warfighter, the innovation, we, we really uh, miss that, you know, in the, in the innovation of new systems. And I, I guess blackjack's out there or whatever, but, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You know, there are certain um, branches that are expeditionary and 20 people and two sea containers and a Humvee, if it'll start, and all the rest of that stuff is not expeditionary.
that is a you know a large commitment of people and resources. And I can't even believe we're you know here we are in 20 well we'll be in 2020 I think we're in fiscal 2021 and we're still talking about you know this replacement. Uh, to me, it's just like gross negligence. But I do think that that is partially uh, at the fault of the FAA. Like you had mentioned, I don't think people understand that either. If you're operating somewhere like IPG or White Sands or somewhere, these places are out in the middle of nowhere. You've got to get the whole company out there. You've got to get everybody out there that's going to fly. And they've got to stay in hotel rooms. And you've got to have cars. And there's per diem. And there's fuel. And there's food. And there's... All of these things that go along with that, plus the, the, the overhead of the hardware to get it out there, to go out there and do these basic um, basic flights. I, I mean, you know, I'm sure that was uh, people complained about uh, the expense of trying to do that in, in your career. Did you hear any, uh, you know, uh, grousing about that, Brock? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you described it so, so accurately, uh, Patrick. Uh, these are all uh, these are all drug deals going on behind the scenes, and I don't even know that, uh, I don't even know that uh, many that participate in this uh, even recognize it because it's it's become well that's just the way it is rather than the way it should be. Uh, but uh, you know uh, what you just described and the enormity of those kinds of packages and the cost that come along with are what attracts those bigger businesses to it because those are all justifiable, chargeable things uh, under the way that they're able to access the contracting system and the other average guy is locked out of it because they don't have the same order of magnitude to be able to compete as that environment. And so uh, when you really get down to it, you realize that uh, sometimes making it more costly, um, even when it's not necessary, and they should be going the opposite direction, i.e. expeditionary, uh, that's where everybody gravitates to because that's where the money is in historically, uh, you know, big companies that are only interested in uh, numbers that have a B associated with it and not, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Right. And unfortunately, like we're in the, we're going to be in the two minute warning here. We didn't even get into the SBIR thing, but, uh, you know, people, oh, you know, we're going after the $100,000 SBIR, which is great, you know. Uh, but in today's money, you know, uh, it doesn't pay for much. That's not, I don't even think you're going to go out and do a demo or, you know, if you had to, uh, to get the company out there, as I described. But uh, definitely interesting, uh, Brock, the, the insight that you brought to this conversation. And, uh, and I hope that, uh, well, I know it is uh, a value. There's real gold in here, value to um the community and to people uh, that are thinking about getting into this business and maybe some of the uh, hurdles of becoming a DOD vendor or developing a system. Um, Gene, did you have anything that you would like to add? You know, I I was kind of hoping we'd get to the SBIR thing because I actually went through that, that whole process and made it to a phase two SBIR and, Oh, it was just, Oh, it was you needed a full-time person to keep up with the paperwork. So, well, yeah, I guess I'll we'll save that for another show. But uh, yeah, it, it's all good. Yeah, Brock, we're going to have to have you back on because I would like to talk about the SBIR thing, domestic aerospace. We we got to about half of what I really wanted to get to because uh, I do want to talk about uh, what's going on in the future in the aerospace industry. I don't know. Uh, what are you doing next week, buddy? Want to come back next week? <laughs> You you uh, you set it up, line it up, and wherever it fits, Patrick, I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Because yeah, I think that uh, there's definitely some value in that, uh, and we did. Like I said, we covered only about half of uh, what I've got on my uh, show prep here. So anyway, uh, yes, uh, belated happy uh, Veterans Day to both of you gentlemen. Uh, appreciate that, um, Brock. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, and, and giving us a, uh, some insight into into this uh, rarely seen world. 
And um, we'll try and get you back on here next week. And until then, everyone have a uh, good week. And I hope everyone's successful, happy, and healthy. And see you next time. Adios. Thanks a lot. See ya.